from Alexandria, Kentucky. Hi, everybody. I'm Dick here, and I'm an alcoholic. God, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, Larry, committee, thank you so much for asking me. It's an honor. It's an honor to speak anywhere in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I've met a lot of people, and thank you for your hospitality. Uh, got two new best friends, Don and Marcy, down here. I've been talking to them quite a bit throughout the conference. Uh, if you get nothing else out of this, this talk, know one thing. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, and I think you'll find that out before I leave here tonight. Uh, when we drove up, I knew nothing about this place. I came with my wife, and uh, we drove up, and we, we came to that little bridge coming into the, into, into the mill area. And, uh, and I just stopped the car, and I looked around, and I said, Mike, this is so beautiful, just the stark beauty of the thing. I looked at Marlene, I said, look what I done drunk us into. You know? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's amazing where Alcoholics Anonymous takes us. Uh, I, I don't think anybody's comfortable doing this kind of thing. Uh, and I never was. I remember the first time uh, my sponsor, he, he believes in action. In action is the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says, you ought to get in action. You ought to, you know, you need to do, do a lead, Dick. And I, I said, uh-uh. <laughs> no way. I'm going to get up there and bear my soul in front of all these people. He said, no, you're going to have to do it. And, and I just fought it, and I wouldn't do it. Finally, he came to me one day. He says, I'm going to make it real easy on you, Dick. He says, I'm going to take you over to Longview State Hospital. And that's, that's the local nut house in Cincinnati, you know. And my ego said, well... You know, it shouldn't be so. What are they going to know? You know, I can talk there. They're not even going to know what I'm talking. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it, Tony. So, so on the way over there, he's telling me, now, Dick, remember when you give a lead, you give it for two reasons. He says the first reason is, is you help yourself. That's the primary reason, you know, you bear your soul. He says secondary reason, you might help somebody else. He says, now, in your case, I really doubt it, but he says you might help somebody else. So all the way over, he's preaching this story. We get there, and it was a psychiatrist, believe it or not, Herb, that, that met me at the door, and he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous at, at the state psychiatric hospital. It, at that time, it was a big hospital. Lots of people in there. And, uh, and uh, he met me there, and, and as he met me, my sponsor saying the same thing. Now, Dick, you're giving a lead one to help yourself, and, and second, you know, you might help somebody else. The psychiatrist must have picked up on this. So anyway, I, I went up on this raised stage like this to, to give my talk, and boy, the patients just filed, and the patients, a lot more than this, God, I was scared to death, you know. I said, I don't, I'm going to open my mouth and nothing's going to come out. But somehow it did, and he introduced me, and, and I started talking. And, and I don't know what I said, but a guy way in the back, he yelled out something like, would you get him out of here? I, we've had a lot of speakers here. Now, he's the very worst we've ever had. Now, get him the hell out of here. Uh, oh, man. I, I kind of looked at that psychiatrist. He says, no, just, just keep talking, Dick. And I... So I talked a little bit longer, and it got worse. You know, this guy started yelling nasty things about my, you know, he said, we've had bunches here. Now, he's terrible. Now, get him the hell out of here. He's messing with my, my serenity here. And I looked at that psychiatrist again. He says, no, just keep talking. It got bad. I mean, he really got nasty, you know. Started talking about my origins and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I walked off this podium, and I stepped down, and I went to that psychiatrist, and I whispered in his ear, and I says, I quit. <laughs> he says, you can't quit. This is an alcoholic. And I said, I quit. I said, I'm not going to be embarrassed by that fool back there. You know, he's just, everything I say, he's making fun of. He said, remember what your sponsor said? I said, no. He said, well, he said, you, you do this for two reasons. I said, what's that? He says, you know, you might help yourself, you know, when you give a lead. I said, yeah, well, how in the hell can this possibly be helping me? He said, well, you got a point there, you know. <laughs> he, he said, but, but. He said, he also said you might help somebody else. I said, yeah, who in the hell can I possibly be helping here? He says, that guy in the back, you know, raising all the hell, first intelligent thing he said in the 28 years he's been here. <laughs> uh, so you just, you never know who you're going to help, you know. I was born and raised in Dayton, Kentucky. Uh, 
baby of eight kids, six older sisters, spoiled. Uh, I was weird, man. I mean, I was a weird little rascal. I was a loner, you know. I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere, you know. And, and I'd go off in the woods. I'd camp in the woods all by myself. That's weird enough, but I did it all summer long. I'd sneak home, get supplies. See, my mother was dead, and my father was drinking, and, and nobody really much cared. I lived with an older sister. I'd sneak home, get supplies, go back up in the woods and camp out. That's weird stuff, you know. And, and I just didn't feel, even though I had a loving family and everything, I just didn't quite feel like I, I belonged here. But I remember one day, I was at a wedding reception, and I drank. And it tells us in chapter 2, you know, when, it, when a person that's alcoholic takes a drink, something happens. Man, something happened when I drank. I just felt like I belonged. God, I felt like I belonged. I danced that night. Hell, I can't dance. Still can't dance, but I danced. The girls like me, you know, I think. At least I perceive they like me, you know. And, and I had a great time. And I said, man, I got sick later, you know, but, you know, that's just part of the price we pay. And uh, I said, man, I'm going to drink every time I get an opportunity. It's kind of hard when you're only 13 years old, but, but back then, and, you know, in, in Campbell County, that's Newport, you could pretty well drink if you could get to the bar, you know, and, and I was industrious. I, I got little jobs, and, and, and I made money, and I drank. I got out of high school when I was only 16 years old. I was smart. But when I got out of high school, I went to an all-Catholic school, all-Catholic, all my life as a Catholic kid. got out of high school, and, and, and I was known at that time as the drunk of Dayton, Kentucky. Now, that's not a big honor to have when you're 16 years old. None of the girls were allowed to t go out with me. Hell, the guys weren't even allowed to go out with me. I mean, I had a bad, bad reputation. So I went to this Catholic priest to kind of tell him my dilemma. I think I was trying to tell him I was alcoholic, but I didn't have a word for it, you know? And, and, and I went there, and I had this conversation with the priest. Don't know how it happened, but it did. As a result of this, I wound up in a seminary studying to be a Catholic priest. <laughs> so I'm in this seminary, and uh, they let me out a couple months later on a weekend pass. I came back Sunday night just drunker in hell, you know. And, and this priest saw me there, and he reported me to the bishop. And, and, and the bishop looked at me, man, this kid's a straight-A student. You know, you must be picking on him. You know, you know it, it can't be as bad as you're saying. But, man, every weekend they let me out, or every month they let me out. I'd come back drunk. I was there 13 months. At the end of that time, one night the bishop was there on a Sunday night, as this was his priest. And he was seeing if the priest was telling the truth. And, and, and as advertised, I come in roaring drunk, you know. And uh, one thing led to another, and I punched the bishop. Now, now, in the Catholic Church, you don't hit the bishop. <laughs> you know, I, I remember I was, in a, I was at a conference in Indiana, and Father Martin spoke. And during his talk, he said, at least I never struck a bishop. <laughs> and I went up to Father Martin, and I said, I did. <laughs> and you know, I think for the first time in Father Martin's life, he was speechless, you know. <laughs> So they threw me out of the seminary, and they, they probably threw me out of the Catholic Church. I, I never really did ask, you know. <laughs> and so you see alcohol's taken a little, I don't think, I, well, I, think, I know I was never meant to be a Catholic priest, but, but it took that away from me. But see, the year before, I took a test for Xavier University, an elite school down in Cincinnati, a great test taker. I was number one in this test. And they, they offered me this four-year academic scholarship in this honors course. So I went back to them. I said, I just gave a year of my life to the Catholic Church. I, I didn't tell them I was thrown out for being a drunk out of the seminary. But they didn't check on anything, and they honored my scholarship. So I went to Xavier on a full four-year academic scholarship. At the end of the year, I made the dean's list. Well, well sort of. The dean called me into his office to remind me I just flunked every subject. <laughs> <laughs> and I lay drunk all year long, and they threw me out of school. So alcohol is starting to take stuff away from me. I mean, it's, it just took away a four-year academic scholarship. That's worth something. And it didn't bother me. You know, I just went on with my life. I got a great job. I made way too much money for a dumb hillbilly kid, you know making money, driving new cars, and, and uh, I was there eight months. 
And one night I'm drunk, like always, and uh, some guy says, I bet you that you can't chug a lug a quart of Jack Daniels. And I won that bet. I went into immediate coma. I was, I was in a coma five days, uh, and I was hospitalized eight months. I was totally screwed up neurologically. And I'm only 19 years old. 19 years old, and alcohol is winning, man, and I'm losing. It's just purely kicking the hell out of me. Nobody said anything like, uh, that kid's got a drinking problem. He could be out. Nobody said that. They said stuff like, poor orphan kid, you know. I bought into that, man. I, I, I lathered up on that. And I laid around for eight months and, and did exercises. And, and it took another year at home. And, and just about two years of my life wiped out because of alcohol. Uh, you think that would scare me? You know, and I was. I had a grand sponsor. He'd say, you know, sometimes alcohol will properly horrify you. Horrify you enough where you won't drink. And I was properly horrified. So, man, I, did, I knew deep down, way back here, when I drank, something happened. And I couldn't drink. I couldn't drink successfully. I knew that. And so I didn't drink. Uh, I, I figured it was easier to go back to school. I finagged another scholarship, and I, and I went to a four-year course. I got out in three years going to night school, summer school, and straight-A student. Uh, got married along the way. Uh, had three kids along the way and uh, got a job as a social worker when I got out of school. I found out most of my clients were making more money than I was. <laughs> you know? Didn't like that. So I got out of that business and, and got a job as an insurance adjuster. I was talking to somebody who was in insurance here earlier, and... Uh, Paula. And, uh, and by the way, Paul, I really enjoyed your message. Uh, I don't know, something about Al-Anon just, I don't know, it, it, the message, we really hear alcoholism from where it's at when you hear it from, from the Al-Anon side. And Larry and, and Patty, thank you so much for your messages. They were, they were wonderful. And uh, so, so I, uh, I got this job as an insurance adjuster. Went to night law school, became a claims manager for a major insurance company, and I wasn't drinking. But all of a sudden, I started drinking again, a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, for, for many, many, many years, I practiced controlled drinking. There's a line in the book that's so, so true. In, in Chapter 3, it says something like, uh, you know, it's a great obsession of every alcoholic that one day he'll both be able to control and enjoy his drinking. Man, I tried. Uh, if I was controlling it, I sure as hell wasn't enjoying it. And if I was enjoying it, I wasn't controlling it. But I practiced that, and I'd hit and miss, and I'd hit and miss. And I was sitting on top of the world making, making good money for a kid, and... Uh, and I blew that job because uh, I gave away too much money on a case when the jury was out, you know, and it was just, or I didn't give away money, and the jury came back and slam-banged us good because my ego said, we're going to win this case, you know. And I talked to the attorney. We were both drunk at the time. I talked him into doing this, and it cost the company like $200,000 that it shouldn't have cost them. And uh, they, uh, they were flying in from New York to fire me. I used to say I was never fired from a job. But they were flying in, and back then, if you had a college degree, you could pick up a paper and get a job. And I picked up a paper, and it said, wanted, pharmaceutical salesman. <laughs> what a job for an alcoholic, go out and sell drugs, you know. So, so you're looking at a drug dealer up here right now, let me tell you. Uh, I, uh, and, I, and I embarked on a career in pharmaceutical sales. I, I went to work for a tiny little company. They were bought off by, by DuPont. Got a great job. Working for DuPont, invested, invested in DuPont. You know, I, I have to pretty well shoot the president of the company to, to lose my job. But I saw a job in the paper, and I'm drinking, hitting and missing again. Saw a job in a paper, wanted pharmaceutical salesman, and it was for a German company whose name I still can't pronounce. Now, at that time, foreign companies weren't doing real good in this country. But my alcoholic mind said, I had to leave DuPont and go with this brand new company. I was the 18th guy they hired. That's not very good thinking. I don't know, we got a, a way of winding up on both feet, you know, and I was at the right place at the right time. This tiny little company, unbeknownst to me, was a monster in Europe. And in this country, they grew like tops, and, and we're one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world today, and I grew with this company. And I traveled all over the United States, and I became an executive with this company, and I made a ton of money with this company. But my drinking was really getting out of control. I was back to daily drinking. The last five years of my drinking was just drinking. I'd work. I'd work every day, and I'd pass out every night. 
Uh, I wouldn't drink till evening. Three o'clock was evening by my standards, but, but, but I wouldn't drink till evening, you know. And, and, and you know, the last, and I was drinking a quart, two quarts of bourbon every day. Unbelievable capacity for alcohol. Unbelievable capacity. But I'd pass out for five years, boring, damn drinking. I'd be looking at myself every night. I look in that mirror. I don't know why the mirrors play such a great part now, but they do. I look in that mirror and I look at you. Just look at you. You're a bum, man. You've got three kids by now at home. They don't even know you, Dick. You haven't seen them grow up. You're out drunk all the time. You've got a wife at home. You're a bum, man. And besides that, this company's going to find out about you. You know, you're, you're, you're really screwing up. You know, you're not re representing the company very well. And, and I look at myself. I say, you're right. I am never going to drink again. Starting tomorrow. I'm quitting tomorrow. And I'd pour a drink, and, and I'd pass out, like always, sometime. Sometime I'd pass out. And I'd wake up in the morning. You drink two quarts of bourbon. You don't feel great in the morning. And, and, and I'd say, you know, as bad as I feel, I know I made a great decision last night. I'm never going to drink again. But, man, by about 3 o'clock, the shakes would start and the sweating would start. And I couldn't even light a cigarette. I shook so bad. And my hands would be so sweaty. And my mind knew somewhere back in the depths of my mind, I said, you need a drink, boy. <laughs> and I'd run to a bar, get a shot and a beer. Just like that. Just like that, my hands would stop sweating, it seemed like, you know. And, I, and I could, I'd stop that shaking, I could light a cigarette. And God, my great mind, my great alcoholic mind would say, hell, it ain't that bad. If one drink can do this much for you, it ain't that bad. And there I was looking in the mirror again that night saying, hey, man, you're a bum, man. Look at you. You're, tomorrow, oh, yeah, I'm quitting. I did that every night of my life for five years. Every night of my life. That's pretty well how it was. What happened? Somewhere along the line, my wife started drinking. So self-centered, so into Dick Hedger, I didn't see it. I couldn't see that she had a problem with alcohol. You know, she was sneaking drinks and, and drinking and found the morning drink. But it got to the point that, that a blind man could see that my wife probably shouldn't drink, you know. I mean, she was wrecking cars, catching houses on fire. Uh, she passed out in the local IGA salad bar one day, you know. And, you know, stuff that gathers attention, you know. And, and, and finally, I got on her and I said, Now, Carol, man, if you can't drink responsibly like me, you ought to drink, <laughs> you know. And, and I kept on her to get some help for her drinking or quit drinking. I came home from work one day, it was in May, 1983, and, uh, and she was drunk, because she found that morning drink. And she was drunk, I probably was always legally drunk, but I hadn't had a drink that day. I don't know what time I passed out the morning before, but I hadn't had a drink that day. And I came home from work and she says, just in, in a drunken haze, I'm going to do something about my drink. And it's only 3 o'clock in the afternoon, she says, I'm going down to the care unit about 20 miles south here down in Falmouth, Kentucky. I said, that's a great idea. Now, Carol, get ready and I'll run you on down there. What? I guess the best way to describe Carol was back then, she was slow to get ready. You know, you know what I'm talking about? She started getting ready and ironing her clothes and washing her clothes and doing her hair and her nails, and she wanted to look good when she went down to that carry and drinking coffee all day. She didn't get ready till 11 o'clock that night. Uh, I had to have something to do, you know, hanging out, so I drank a quart of bourbon, you know. Well, got down to the carry unit, and I'm drunk, and she's sober, and uh, see, they had a... They had a dilemma on their hands. <laughs> you know, do you keep the drunk one or do you keep the sober one, you know? Well, I'm a salesman by trade, you know, and I walked out of that hospital. I walked out of that hospital in Carroll State. I remember it to this day, and, and I regretted this, and, it, and I tried to make my amends, and, and I still feel so rotten. I stopped at a bar on the way home. It was like 1.30 before the bar closed, and I sat there and, and told him what a rotten thing it was that I had to live with an alcoholic wife and got drunk in that bar and did it every night. I visited her every night, big shot. You know, but I got drunk every night. And, and, and I remember I was going to do it, because i got this alcoholic wife now. You know, it's my job to take care of her, man. So I did everything they told I joined Al-Anon by God, you know. 
I went to these Al-Anon meetings. I was drunk at every one of them. Uh, you know, I'd come in there, and it was all ladies, and I made fun of them. I made fun of their book. you got this little blue book. and it, I, I go to Al-Anon today, and I love Al-Anon, so believe me. But I, I made fun of their book. They'd read this thing, and I remember the very first meeting I went, it said, then he did this, and then he did that, and, then, and I go, she, 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 you know, and just correct their book, you know, and, and, and they, I just sort of drifted away from, from that, you know. And I remember also at the care unit, they said, now be sure that Carol gets to these AA meetings. That's important. So I thought, well, I'll do my part. So I took her to any AA meeting she wanted to go to, as long as there was a bar pretty damn close. I'd drop her off, go to the bar and drink, pick her back up, drag her back to the bar with me. Couldn't understand why she couldn't say sto- stay sober. Hell, I was doing my part, you know. It was a mess, man. It was a mess. She's drinking, uh, in and out of care units. Uh, I'm drinking. We're hiding booze from each other, you know. I don't want her to drink mine. You know, I'm marking it. She's watering it down, you know. She, she went on a scavenger hunt one time because I wouldn't give her any money and booze. And she came home. She had a gallon of Maker's Mark, man. A gallon of Maker's Mark. And I drink bourbon. I threw it down the toilet. Then I found out I had to pay the neighbor whatever it was, 50 bucks for the damn gallon of Maker's Mark. Then I went out and bought a quart of cheap stuff for myself, you know. That's insanity. That's total insanity, and it was insane like this. So she's in and out of these places, just couldn't get sober. And on November the 19th, 1983, uh, she said to me something like, Dick, I don't have much of a chance, you know, I don't have much of a chance with you the way you are, you know, and maybe, maybe if you quit drinking, and maybe at least not have it in the house, maybe if you do something about your drinking, I'd have a chance. So I must have promised her I'd do something about my drinking. Woke up the next morning, like I always looked in the mirror. I was big and fat, and I'm getting there again, man, just blowing up again, but I weighed like 240 pounds. I had the reddest face you've ever seen, the longest unkempt hair you've ever seen, and I, didn't, I, yeah, I just uh, I got demoted a bunch of times uh, w- with this company, you know, for, for my drinking, and, uh, you know, I passed out off of a stage in a national sales meeting, you know, I mean, they, they kind of noticed those kind of things, and, you know, and, and they started demoting me in my job, you know, so, so I, I was just, you know, I was down to about half my income where I was. I was back in Cincinnati on a local basis, just selling to doctors locally, and, and I didn't have enough money to buy clothes, and I still had all these credit cards out there because I was a big shot spender when I was drinking, you know. And, and, and it was a mess, and I looked bad. So I got up in the morning, you know, and I looked in the mirror, and I, I said, man, that's your problem. Look at you. You're a fat slob. Look at you. You need a haircut. You know, you need some new clothes. You know, any resolve about drinking. What you do is you've got to clean up, get these new clothes, go out and make a lot of money, and everything's going to be great. So I went off to buy some new clothes. Got a tap on my shoulder. I was at a bargain discount place in downtown Cincinnati. And a guy tapped me on his shoulder. His name was Tony D. Tony D was in the same business I was in. He was a pharmaceutical salesman. Been sober like three years in Alcoholics Anonymous at the time. And, and the funny part about the whole thing is Tony gave the lead at my wife's very first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. So Tony knew about my wife and he said, how's things going? And I started to tell him about my wife, you know. He says, no, he says, look at you, Dick. I'm not talking about her. Look at you, man. You're a mess. You smell like a damn distiller, and you look just like shit. He says, why don't you try to do something about your own drinking? So he talked me into going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that night, beginner's class at Oak Street in Cincinnati, a big clubhouse. Uh, He said that I called him five times with every excuse in the book to get out of it, but I showed up. I remember walking into a hall in this this big place like this, and I looked around, and I saw this stuff, you know, let go, let God, and he, easy does it. Saw these steps, and I, what is this place? And, and I saw a sign that, that I liked. It, it said exit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted out of there. But I went upstairs, you know. And I went upstairs, and, and there was a meeting downstairs, beginner's class upstairs. They had beginner's classes down there. And at that time, the central office of Alcoholics Anonymous in Cincinnati was in this building. And there was a coffee bar, and all the literature now was behind a coffee bar. And, and I came down them steps, and 
Tony said, got any money on your big guy, you know, and how always the big shot. Oh, yeah, Tony, what do you need, man? He said, I don't need anything. But he turned around and says, give Dick one of every book you got back there. I came out of there with 60-something dollars worth of AA literature, you know. I didn't want it, you know. So I put it in the trunk of my car where it belonged. <laughs> That's where it stayed. You know, I didn't read it. For the first six months I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, I went to meetings. I mean, I went to meetings. I went to three, four, five meetings a day. You know, I went to alcohol. Damn near got fired for, for going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings rather than working. I didn't get fired drunk, but I almost got fired sober. I was going to meetings. That's all I was doing, though. I was the most miserable person in the universe. I wanted to drink with every fiber of my body because I wasn't working a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't doing nothing but going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I see people do that today, and I think, why did they do that? Well, how I did it? You know, my company makes pharmaceuticals, and one of the things we were working on is a drug for AIDS. And we went out to California to sign up 500 patients to take this experimental drug. And it's a nasty drug. You know, it can cause a lot of side effects, as so many of these kind of drugs do. They're very, very toxic. So we had to go and explain to these people all the side effects of this drug. Now, at this Scripps Institute in La Jolla, California, there's like 575 patients. We needed 500 for a study. So we figured we'd get 100 out of here maybe, you know. You know, 100 that will agree to taking the risk with this nasty drug, you know, that their hair might fall out and they might have heart attacks and all the things that could happen with this toxic drug. All but one patient of the 575 wanted to take this drug. They wanted this one chance to maybe live. And yet we walk in these rooms and we see those 12 steps on the wall, and they say, man, you've got a disease. You're going to die. Every bit as deadly as AIDS. You're going to die. All you've got to do is work them 12 steps. And then you, then you have to go out in the gutter and die. You don't have to live this crummy life. You know, what do we say? I've got to think about it. You know, that's what I did. That's what I did. And uh, I don't know. So I didn't do anything. I was miserable. I was in Moorhead, Kentucky. I was six months dry. I didn't say sober. I said dry. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't taking. I never took any drugs in my life. What a miracle. You know, back in the old days, and doctor remembers this, we used to sample stuff out of the trunk of our car, lots of stuff, anything. I sold Percodan at one time. I sold Preludin at one time. We sampled those kind of things. And, and uh, I, uh, I didn't take any drugs. You know, if I had taken drugs, I'd have been dead a long, long time ago. Man, my, my God looked out for me when I didn't even know he was doing it, you know. So uh, I, I, I don't know. It was, just a, it was just a crazy situation. And I was in this morgue Kentucky one night, and I wanted to drink so bad. So very bad. But I knew meetings work. But in Moorhead, Kentucky, on a Monday night, there wasn't an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. But there was an Al-Anon meeting. And I thought, hell, it beats a blank, you know? So I, I went to this Al-Anon meeting, and, uh, and it got to me, and I started telling them about the life. My wife's still drinking, you know, and she's doing all these things, and I, and I, can't, I told them I wasn't sleeping. I said, I haven't slept in six months. You know, it's, it's terrible living with an alcoholic wife. And man, they were the nicest bunch of ladies you've ever seen. I mean, they were very, I mean, they said nice things and patted me on the back, built the whole meeting around me. So it came to this lady named Billy. Now, everybody in Billy's family was alcoholic. Everybody. None of them in recovery. Most of them have died since. But Billy was the healthiest woman I've ever known in my life because she was working the steps and principles of Al-Anon. And Billy looked at me and she says, don't they have step three in Alcoholics Anonymous? I didn't know what in the heck she was talking about. I've been here. I've seen it. I've read it. I've heard it. I didn't pay any attention to it. I don't know about anybody else in here, but I don't like to be one up by anybody, man. So I went back in my motel, and I opened the trunk of my car and got those brand new books out. And I read the big book, and I read the 12 and 12 up to about where it says step three, and I realized, I never prayed. I've never prayed in alcoholics, and I've never let go and let God.
I hit my knees and I prayed that night. Nothing's been the same since. I came back to Cincinnati. I said, Tony, I want to belong. <laughs> he said, it's about time. He says, let's start working the program. He says, you know, Dick, I've always told you the person you used to be is going to drink again. Alcoholics Anonymous is about changing the way you used to be. And the steps in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous will help you do that, you know. So I started working my program, and I call it my 3A program, a program of acceptance, action, and attitude. I got to accept every day that I'm alcoholic. Man, that means everything about this disease, you know, everything about it. You know, I'm, I'm different than other people when it comes to alcohol. And I got to accept that. I got go to go to these meetings, and, and, and I got to do all the things necessary to accept this thing. And, and, and I, I hear people give, give talks in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they say, you know, I'm going to tell you about recovery. And God, that's good. I like that. But, but they say, well, you don't need to hear how, to, how I drank, you know, or how to, you all know how to drink. It doesn't tell me that in a book. It tells me to tell you what I was like and what happened and what I'm like today so you can maybe identify a little bit, you know. Because we learn by example. We absolutely learn by example. There's a story I tell. It's about a parrot that, that, that learned by example. This little parrot lived in a, in a mansion, and it sat in the foyer of this mansion, and the, the, the lady of the mansion was a lady named Mary. And this parrot was a, everybody called it a gentleman parrot. It would sit on this perch, and everybody would walk into this house, and, and it would ask the parrot directions. The parrot would say, well, you know, the bathrooms are this way, you know, and ladies, hang your shawls this way, you know, gentlemen, caps over here. And we've got some cocktails in the back room, you know. And boy, people would marvel about this doggone parrot, you know. But finally, one, one lady got her aside and says, Mary, this parrot, you know, you know it's the kindest, nicest parrot. I've, it's a gentleman. But did it ever cuss? You know, parrots kind of got a reputation like this. And she's a oh, God. So all it did was cuss, you know, I mean, you know, it was owned by a drunken sailor when I got it. She says, well, how did you get it to stop using all that bad language? She says, by example, I guess. So what do you mean by example? She says, well, yeah, I tried everything. I washed this little bill out with, with soap, you know, and smacked this little rump and smacked it across this bill a few times. Eh, nothing at work. Boy, finally one day I'm watching television, it let off some nasty stuff. I picked that parrot up by its feet, walked in the basement, threw it in the freezer, and went upstairs to watch television, let that daggone parrot die down there. Man, I got upstairs and... After a while, I said, I can't do that to that innocent parrot, you know. So I went down, I got the parrot out of the freezer. But it's, it's frozen, man. It's, it's, it's a cube, you know. And, and I said, oh, man. I, and I started crying. That parrot sitting on my lap. But, you know, I guess the body warmed, warmed the parrot up, and it kind of thawed out, you know. And, and, and it came back to life. And it shivered, and it looked up at me with great big tears coming down its eyes. And, and I said, Polly, I hated to do that to you, but tell me something. Are you ever, ever going to cuss again? The parrot says, no, ma'am. I ain't never, but tell me something. What in the hell did that turkey down there do? <laughs> See, that turkey didn't learn by example, you know. I was at the clubhouse. I was at my clubhouse one night, at the clubhouse I go to, and my, my wife was sober at the time, and, and a guy called. His name was Jim. And Jim was uh, 32 years old. He was an Indian. And Jim was, uh, he, he was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous six, month, or six years. And his wife left him, and he went on cross-country drunk. And we found him in Florence, Kentucky, in his phone booth. And he was a mess. I mean, a, a total mess. And one thing led to another. I got him in a long-term program. Jim was 32 years old. He was gorgeous black hair I've ever seen. Long Indian hair. Gorgeous, gorgeous man. Got him in this long-term program. He asked me to be a sponsor, and I was working with him. He was there for several months. And warm summer night, he called me. Three it wasn't night. It was morning, 3.30 in the morning. And he said, you'll never guess where I'm at. And I said, Jim, I, I know. I don't know where you're at, but I know what you are. It's pretty obvious you're drunk. I said, tell, tell you what, Jimmy, you find a quarter, and you call me back at a decent hour in the morning, I'm going back to sleep. Jim bled to death in that phone booth that night. See, he had a hemorrhage of the esophagus. He never accepted that he was alcoholic and he had to do the things he needed to do. I had a hard time with that. I blamed myself for that for a long time. I know today he was going to die anyway, but, 
But you see, acceptance is the key to this doggone thing. Acceptance is the key. Uh, action. God, action is a magic word. I, I like Clancy talks about just getting into action, you know, working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. That means getting get a sponsor when you get here. You know, get a home group. My home group knows. My home group's the Big A in Alexandria, Kentucky. We meet on Wednesday night. It's a great, great group. And they know me inside and out. They know when I'm right, they know when I'm wrong, and that's nice being there every Wednesday night. And, and home groups are important, you know. Get involved in service work, you know. I'm a GSR, I've been a GSR off and on several times. I, I just finished a thing as area treasurer, I hated that, but somebody asked me to do it, so I can sympathize with you, Larry, you know. And, and, and get involved in service work if you can, you know. Uh, and I was area host committee chairman for six years, and those kind of things I don't really like. But somebody said do it, it'll keep you sober, you know. I like mainly working with drunks, that, that's the thing I like to do best. Uh, so get into action, you know. Action means reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. This is where it's at, you know, and I, and I, I love this group because this is so big book oriented and I hear people talk about service and I hear people talk about the big book. And I read a story in here kind of about Jim the Indian that I work with that died and kind of, uh, I, I like it. I read the story about several times when I was first sober and, and I thought, they put this story in here as a joke. They put it in here to see if I was paying attention and my sponsor was going to quiz me because it's a four-page story by... Uh, an American Indian, a Canadian Indian. And it's written like an Indian would talk, you know, that stilted native tongue, you know. And, and it's kind of goofy. And, and, but I started reading, I read the last couple paragraphs, and in the last two paragraphs of this story is the whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and uh, I was at a, and I've done this for several years, and, and I was at the World Conference in Seattle, and I went to an old-timers meeting, and this little guy sat next to me with beads all over him. And it was the guy who wrote this story. His name is Maynard. So the story I've been quoting, I got to meet the guy, so I guess I'll read it for a little bit longer. Listen to what Maynard says near the end of his story. He says, I say, just let it happen. This sober idiot say to sick, red-eyed alcoholic who went good medicine, put cork in bottle. No drunk hopeless if he want to follow a guide along right trail. Go to AA meetings. Listen, not just hear noise. Get sponsor and phone numbers. Call friend in AA when bad thoughts come. Let group spirit of love and understanding protect you. Take my hand. Walk with me up 12 steps of AA to peace. To Indians, I say, don't be afraid to join AA. I once hear people say only Indians crazy when drunk. If so, AA full of Indians, join the tribe. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that story because it tells the program. It tells the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the third A I, I talk about is attitude. God, if I wasn't happy here, I believe I'd be out there drunk. You know, I, I demand my happiness. And you can see that. I love to be happy. I love to have fun in Alcoholics Anonymous. I demand being happy, joyous, and free today. And it tells me that in the book. It tells me I'm supposed to be that way, you know. And I had no idea what happiness was. You know, we talk serenity. We, you know, we say the serenity prayer, and I didn't have a clue what serenity was. Not a clue. This is the end of side one. Please stop the machine and turn, turn the tape over. Heard a story one time. God helped me so much. It was, a, it was, about, it was about a millionaire. This guy had millions and millions of dollars. And he was sitting talking to his advisor one day. He says, man, he says, I am the most miserable person in the world. He says, in fact, money can't buy happiness. You know, I've got it, and I'm not happy. He says, you know, I hear people talk about this thing called serenity, and, and I don't know what it is. I'd like to have some of it. Maybe if I had some of that, I'd be okay. And the wise advisor said, you know, artists are kind of sensitive people. What you ought to do is get an artist to paint you a painting and call it serenity, and then you'll know. Pay him half a million bucks. He says, help. Get two artists to paint you a painting called Serenity. Give them a year to do it, plenty of time. Have them come back with these two paintings, give them a half a million bucks a piece, and then you'll have a real good idea what Serenity is. So he did that. At the end of the year, the first guy came back and he unfurled his painting. It's a nice quiet pond. 
you know, a little duck floating on it, blue, puffy clouds up above, you know, maybe a little, just a bird floating by, real quiet and gentle, not a breeze in the sky. And the millionaire said, man, that's peaceful. That's serenity. I, I, I want some of that. In fact, I don't need to see that other painting. The guy said, you paid a half a million dollars for it, you got to at least look at it. So the other artist unfurls his painting. It's a painting of a waterfall. You ever been by a waterfall? They're noisy. I mean, the water's crashing down. You can see the white coming up, and the rapids are running out, and you know, the stream is, 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 the dirt's being pulled away from the sides of the bank, you know, and just noise is coming off that canvas. And, 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 and the millionaire says, man, this is a noisy, noisy thing. Now, just get it out. I can hear the noise coming off that canvas. And, and the artist said, would you look at my painting a little bit closer? And the millionaire looked real close. You know, on the bank right next to that waterfall was a tree, and in that tree was a nest. And in that nest was a little mother robin feeding her young. It total peace and quiet, despite the noise about her, you know. Now, isn't that the kind of peace we need out there in the real world? I don't know about your world, but my world doesn't always do exactly what I wanted to do, you know. <laughs> not, not hardly ever, as a matter of fact. So that story meant so much to me, you know, that, that really describes serenity to me. I, I, we were talking earlier in, uh, about Dr. Bob, and he used to always say, he was a very, very simple man, as you all know. Every time he talked, he said about the same thing, but he said, trust God, clean house, and help others. You know, so many simple things tell us the whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That trust God thing, God, I had a hard time with that. I thought, boy, God ain't going to like me too much after punching the bishop and, you know, one of his servants and stuff like that. I'm in deep trouble, you know, uh, and he ain't never going to forgive me. And I told my sponsor that. My sponsor laughed at me. He says, you arrogant SOB, you just think God wouldn't forgive you. And I heard tiny things in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, a little story of a girl doing a painting in kindergarten. The teacher said, what are you doing, Mary? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she says, you can't marry. Nobody knows what God looks like. She says, they will when I'm done. <laughs> you know. For Chuck Chamberlain on the West Coast, she used to say, we're just God's kids, man, in this thing together. We've got to help each other. We've got to just help each other, you know. i uh, I got three kids. I don't care what my kids would ever do to me. I'd still love them. Always love them. And, I, and I'm sure that God still loves me. And those kind of things help. Those kind of things help. Uh, I tell a story about a guy that ought, to, that ought to know about this kind of thing. It was a minister. He sat on his porch one day, and a little kid's riding his tricycle down the driveway, and there's a hole in the driveway. He's got a tricycle, brand new. He's got all new clothes on. And he hits that hole in the wheel on his tricycle bends. And he falls off that tricycle, and he skins his knee up, and he skins his arm. He's bleeding, and a bicycle is shot, and he knows Mama's going to get him when he gets home. Didn't see the minister on the porch, so he yells out, Son of a bitch! Man, that minister, down the driveway, you know, and just gave Johnny what for. He says, Johnny... He says, that's a terrible thing to say. Now, you know, you, you didn't need to say a word like that, you know. Reverend, you know Mama's going to get me when I get home. What would you say if something like that ever happened again? The minister says, well, something like, praise God, you know, something nice like that. A couple weeks later, Johnny's got a new bike, new clothes, you know, looking good, all healed up, and same minister's driveway, minister's on the porch again. Minister didn't fix his driveway, though. Same hole, same results. He hits the hole, bends the wheel, he falls off, you know, and just as he hits the ground and his legs bleed and everything else, same, almost identical. He looks up and he catches that minister out of the corner of his eye, you know. And he said, whoops, praise God. You know, just like that, that wheel on that bike straightened out. You know, his pants leg sewed up like a magic marker, you know, and his arms stopped bleeding. And the minister was heard to say, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Clean house. We had a guy named Jelly Roll, sober a lot of years, 40-something years when he died. I died sober. And he'd, he'd always say, raise the red flag, gentlemen, and, and, and get the garbage out of your life. 
he was talking about working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was talking about you know, going through the step and, and realizing you're alcoholic. And I believe the key of knowing you're alcoholic is knowing this is a disease. I think that's so much of the core of acceptance of, of this disease is realizing this is a disease and man, you got it. If you don't do something about it, you're going to die or just get out there. Maybe worse, live. Maybe live a miserable damn existence. And, and, and do your inventory. God, it's not that hard. It's not that hard to do an inventory. It's in a book on page 65, a little chart. It's right there. You know, get with your sponsor. That's what they're for, you know. Talk to your sponsor. Say, how do I do this? You know, if you're, if you're confused. He'll say, read page 65. But anyway, you can try that, you know. But, but do your inventory. You know, I remember I did mine. I sat with my sponsor. Did my fifth step. And as we went through that thing, he, 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 we made our men's list. There were my men's list that I had to make. And at the end of the thing, he says, you know, and when we did the prayer, you know, the third step prayer together, and at the end, we, you know, we looked into step six and seven, and I realized I had to do something about my character defects. But he said, you've got to go out now, Dick, and make these amends. He says, and the number one you've got to make is to that lady named Helen. Helen's all over your, your fifth step, man. She's everywhere. See, Helen was my mother-in-law. Helen hated me, and I hated Helen. Just that damn simple, you know. She blamed me for my wife's alcoholism. I went to Helen after a lot of prodding from my sponsor and, and told her everything I could, and Made my amends, and she threw me out of her house. <laughs> I went back to Tony, and done, right? He said, no. He said, now you got to act like you meant those amends. And I said, man, she don't ever want to see me again. He says, oh, she will. You know, families are kind of like that. And Helen saw me. And a few years later, the healing took place. It was long and slow, but it took place. And Helen was in Florida and found out she had cancer. She had to be flown back to Cincinnati. And she asked me to pick her up rather than one of her own kids because she wanted to talk. She had a colostomy. Uh, at the end of a year after that colostomy was on, it, it, something happened and it ruptured and she had to be rushed back to the hospital and another colostomy bag put on. And she came home from the hospital crying. She called me. She said, Dick, come run, run right down there. I lived about a half hour from her. And I said, Helen, what's wrong when I got there? And she says, Dick, look at this thing. She had a colostomy bag on her side, totally full. You all know what a colostomy bag is, you know. And, and it was bleeding and there were stitches and there were clamps. And she says, Dick, this thing's full and I've got to change it. She says, it's going to hurt. Look at it. It's a mess down there. She says, will you take this off for me? She says, you know, you're gentle, Dick, and I know you won't hurt me. Isn't that love, man? Love at its greatest depth. And I, and I, I love that lady, man. I, I love that lady. I, I can't tell you. She was a mother that I lost a lot of years ago, and she came into my life and was there for me when I needed her. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit. Helen was there when I needed her. Never, ever would have happened had I not made that amends. Uh, Helen died a couple years ago. Uh, Cancer finally ate her up. God, what a life she led the last couple of years. What a lot of good that lady did. Uh, help others. The most beautiful compensation in life, Emerson said this, is that no one can help another without ultimately helping himself. Isn't that what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about? One drunk helping another. Right at its core, it's one drunk talking to another drunk. I believe in sponsorship. I've got a sponsor. Actually, I've got two. I've got one up here in the West Virginia area. I was talking to Larry about him. His name's Tim, and he's a great guy. And i got another one, Tony, from day one. And I use them. I talk to them, and they help me. And I believe in. And I sponsor a bunch of guys. Uh, I believe in carrying the message. I, I go to a lot of meetings. Uh, still, I still go to a lot of meetings. And, and and I go to detox once a week. And I go to a care unit once a week. I need to see the new drunks. I need to remember where I came from. I need to remember those kind of things. What's it like today? Well, you know, a few years ago, a lot of stuff happened in my life. Uh, uh, all at once, I was in I was in a car wreck, a bad car wreck. Totaled the car and I had. Real screwed up back, knees, arm. And I was working a lot of surgeries, and, and I was in constant pain. And they didn't want to do the back surgery right away because they were worried about paralysis. There was a lot of swelling, a lot of other complications. And, and, and at this period of my life, everything was going wrong. I, I was in constant pain, trying to work, you know, 
doing the best I could gimping around it. I'm still selling pharmaceuticals. Doing the best I could working. And at this time, my daughter married this guy. And the best way to put it, she married this. He was a jerk, you know, a wife-beating jerk. And, uh, and she was in pain with this kind of thing, and it was just eating me alive. And as a result of this marriage, she had a, a little baby, and the baby was born with cerebral palsy. And uh, the same stretch of time, my boy, he dove in a pool the wrong end and broke his neck in three places, and he was looking at paralysis. And in this same area, my wife returned to drinking. She'd been sober five years. I was in Portsmouth, Ohio, at a Holiday Inn. I took a shower, and I was taking a shower, and I was talking to God. I really wasn't talking. I, I was yelling at God. I was telling him, this ain't right, man. I'm doing what I need to do, and you're screwing me, man. Everything in my life screwed up. I don't think I'll ever walk again, you know, right? You know, I don't think, you know, my wife's drinking, and it's a mess, and my kid looks looking at paralysis, and I, you know, all the, I'm naming these things off to God, you know, like he don't know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I came out of that shower, and, and I went to comb my hair, brush my hair, and the mirror fogged up. You know how the steam will follow you out? And it said across that mirror, I love you. And my dirty mind said, huh, somebody had a hell of a night here a couple nights ago, you know? Second line of that mirror fogged up, it said, God. I said, I love you, God. Now I know some little fervent kid wrote that on that mirror, and, and, and I know some maid didn't do her job. But I also know it was there for me to see when I needed to see it. It was there for me to read when I needed to read it. God, it helped. It helped. Little things like that just stick in and help when you need it, you know. I had uh, several surgeries. My knee's still screwed up, and it's as good as it's going to get, but I get around okay, you know, even in the snow, you know. Head back surgery. Back surgery was total, except, except for one little minor thing. I died on the operating table. I'm laying on my belly, and they said, he's dying, man. I'm laying there on my belly. I think five of the guys I was set through that whole surgery with me that I sponsored. But I'm laying on my belly, and they're saying he's allergic to something. His blood pressure's down to nothing. We're going to lose him. We don't know what to do. It seemed like forever, and I'm laying there listening. I, it wasn't an out-of-body thing. I'm just listening, thinking, this is interesting, you know. And, and, and I really thought I was dying. But I wasn't afraid. Isn't that a great gift not to be afraid to die? I'm not saying if that happened tonight, I wouldn't be afraid. You know, no, I don't know. I don't know. That was that night, and this is now, you know. <laughs> but uh, they came by and shot me with something, probably some kind of dope, you know. Boop, I perked right up, and, uh, you know, here I am. You know, I didn't die, you know. And uh, I had the knee surgeries and, and all those kind of things, and, uh, and I came through that pretty well. My, uh, my son had surgery. Three of the guys I sponsored sat through that long ordeal, and at the end of the surgery, it was total successful. He's got several plates in his neck, and... He's a plumber by trade. And as a matter of fact, he just finished remodeling my house. Uh, and uh, him and my wife, she's more handy than I am. He, uh, he just finished remodeling my house, and, and it was a total success. And, and, and the neurosurgeon said he's never seen anything like it. He's never seen a break like this with no paralysis, no, no, no after effects whatsoever. And, and, and I prayed. I prayed. Uh, my daughter got out of that marriage. Huh? She divorced that jerk. And my little grandbaby, she's uh, almost six years old, just six years old, and she's walking with a native of Walker with the help of the Shrine Institute down in Lexington and uh, a lot of surgery. She's looking at another surgery in May, and she may walk on her own a little bit one day, and I love that Eden. I've got two other grandbabies, uh, and, uh, and I love them. Uh, my, uh, my wife never stopped drinking. In November 1983, I walked out of a 32-year marriage. Uh, we separated. I, I couldn't stand the emotional financial, every kind of pain there is with living with alco active alcoholism. Hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. Hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. Uh, we, we met, she sat up in her own apartment and my daughter visited her and, and I supplied the best I could for her through this separation. In February, my daughter found her dead in bed. Uh, she actually drank herself to death. Uh, terrible disease. It's a terrible disease. I used to think, man, this lady don't understand nothing. She, I, I knew she knew more about alcoholics than I was, and I ever thought she, could, she may have this book memorized. 
she'd been to so many care units and halfway houses. I thought, man, she knows everything there is about this disease. But I said, she don't get it. You know, because she'd, she'd blame people for her alcoholism. Like we all do, you know, think about it. We all do. We always, it's their fault and it's that person's fault until we take our own blame, you know. And I thought, she don't really get this thing at all, man. She don't, she don't understand. But I was going through her belongings after she died, and she's got a book just like mine. A friend of ours gave us these at the same time with this cover on it. Nothing in it. A couple of roses dried up, nothing underlined, except was, these words were written on the very front of her book that told me she understood. But see, she was in that downward spiral called alcoholism and couldn't get out. This is what she wrote. Blaming others leaves no room for change. Blame the performance, not the performer. People may not remember what you have said, but they will remember how you made them feel. Give me flowers while I can see them. Say kind words while I can hear them. It's got a date on it that says a little lady on the news. So she knew. She knew. She just couldn't stop the progression of alcoholism. It was just too late. Man, I tell people in detox, they say, well, I'm here again. I says, man, you might not get back the next time. Take this gift and run with it, man. You know, run with it. Um, I, uh, right after that, my, my little sister, I had a retarded sister, the Down syndrome child that lived with me, and, and she died. Uh, her name was Marcy. And uh, I had a, two brother-in-laws die, and, and my mother-in-law died right in that same period of time. So I had five deaths in like six months. And it was a black period in my life. I didn't have to drink, you know. People in Alcoholics Anonymous were there for me. They were absolutely there for me. Uh, I don't know what I'd do without this program. Uh, today, uh, God, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, God's given me all you people. I got friends. I've been in AA in 32 states sober. It's great. Everywhere I go, I got friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I've been to a couple world conferences. What a gift, man. What a gift. Uh, my family. God, my kids love their daddy today. They didn't understand their dad. They thought, what the heck is wrong with my dad? Don't he love me? My one daughter, when I made amends, she said to me, she said, Dad, I, I thought I did something wrong. She says, I thought I did something to hurt you. I never understood why, why, why you weren't there for me. I mean, I didn't beat him. I, didn't, I, I supplied money for him, but I didn't give him Dick Hedger. I didn't give him me. And I do today with the help of my wife. I, I, uh, I, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me Marlene. <laughs> I, uh, I kept going to Al-Anon. I was in an Al-Anon meeting uh, a little over a year ago in August, and the lady there liked my legs. <laughs> One thing led to another, and we got married September the 30th this year, and, uh, and that's Marlene sitting back there, and, and I love her to death, and she's just become such a great part of my family. Uh, my kids love her, and I didn't think they'd ever accept another person, but she's that kind of person because she's got the program in her life. My kids and my grandkids think she is the greatest thing in the world. I got three grandkids, man, they're great. I got a great life today. Uh, I have got a wonderful life today. You know, above all this, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a God of my understanding. I got a God that, that I know and, and, and knows me. And even more than that, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me back Dick Hedger. I ain't a bad guy today, you know. I ain't a bad guy. I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to close with something I heard a long, long time ago. Uh, our co-founder, Bill Wilson, was once asked if AA could survive in a perilous, hostile world like communism or something like that under a dictatorship, should AA confront such a situation? Bill's reply, I think you need have no fear. Let the cold winds blow if they must and the night darken. You and I know a land where the light is bright and there's a stillness of the spirit, a land we could live in for as long as we live, for it exists only in our hearts. It's a land called Alcoholics Anonymous. 
The Lord, I believe, created AA for us. May it be his will that we keep it free. I'm Dick Hedger. I'm an alcoholic.